This is Undisciplined. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. There are a few things sweeter than the face of a puppy staring back at you. But how does the puppy understand what you're saying? And when exactly do they start picking up on our cues? A new study by University of Arizona researchers shows that puppies as young as two months old can recognize when people are talking to them and look where they're pointing. A big chunk of that is genetic, meaning that puppies can understand humans before they've even gone through doggy kindergarten. That's in large part because of the way that dogs have been bred over generations to socialize with humans. Gita Nanadasakan is the co-author of a new study in the journal Current Biology and several others about the cognitive development of dogs and wolves. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona's Department of Anthropology. She's also a researcher at the Arizona Canine Cognition Center. Gita Nanadasakan, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. To start off, it's pretty remarkable that sort of just eight weeks in, puppies are able to understand what humans are trying to tell them or how to, you know, redirect their attention. So how much of that is learning that happens within like the first two months? And how much of that is like sort of genetic that they're born with? Yeah, that was something that really motivated this study, because we've known for actually a couple decades now that dogs seem to have this remarkable ability to follow our communicative cues. But of course, that could be through the process of domestication, a genetic ability, or it could be this learned behavior. And so by testing puppies at a very young age, we start to be able to ask what the role of experience is. And in this study, we found that puppies at eight weeks old were already very good at following our cues. Uh, And so we think that experience is actually, although it is later important and can certainly strengthen these abilities, it is not required for young puppies to be able to follow our cues. Wow. I mean, it's pretty crazy to think of like this puppy kind of is born knowing how to communicate with a different species. And that, you know, comes from sort of generations of breeding dogs and domesticating them. Can you explain briefly sort of like how we got to this point where dogs have this innate ability? Yeah, first of all, I think it's still to some extent an open question. We know that domestication has changed dogs in many ways, and that includes aspects of their physiology, of course. And so the idea that it would have changed their behavior and cognition is really an easy one to consider, but how it did so is much harder. And the best thing that we can do to try to get at that is to compare dogs to wolves, because wolves and dogs share a genetic ancestor somewhere between probably 15 and 30,000 years ago, maybe a, a little bit longer. That's There's still a uh, debate on that. But they're very closely related, and yet their behavior seems to be distinct. And so we see that dogs are much better, more flexible. They maybe learn to communicate with humans at an earlier age than wolves do. And so we think that domestication has played an important role here, but the question of how is still really an open one, and that's the subject of much of our future research. When we think of our dogs and our pets, we often think of them sort of like as our kids, you know, (laughs) and rightly so. You know, we feed them, we teach them things, we love them, we cuddle them, and there's research suggesting that sort of like the 
dogs and puppies cognitive development is sort of similar to that of like human children in terms of like could you describe how they might parallel one another or what we kind of know about that at this point sure um one thing that we explored a little bit in this study actually is what we call dog directed speech Uh, and this is in parallel to what's often called infant directed speech or sometimes parentese or motherese and this is a phenomenon by which we as, as humans will talk to our pets with a kind of high intonation, very engaging, somewhat silly sounding vocalization. So, hi, puppy. Are you a good puppy? And when we do this with our study subjects, these eight to 10 week old puppies, they seem to pay attention to the fact that we are trying to communicate with them. And they will spend quite a bit of time actually looking at our faces as we speak to them. Yeah. And so what is it about that sort of like baby talk or like high pitched sort of speaking? Like, what is it about it that like both puppies and humans sort of like respond to? Our best guess, I think, is that it signals intentional communication and maybe even in some cases, almost a a pedagogy, natural pedagogy or teaching that we're actively trying to communicate with them. Because of course, both babies and dogs and cats, they live in this environment where adult humans are saying all sorts of things, doing all sorts of things. And there's a lot of stimuli and, and information to process. And that intonation can maybe signal to them, hey, I'm talking to you. And they seem to actually pay attention to that. I want to talk about another um, experiment that you did as a part of this study. So you showed that even without training, the dogs were able to sort of find the food hidden under a cup when the human pointed at it. And so how did you determine that like they were responding to that sort of cue versus, oh, they smelled the food and they were like, yes, food. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really common thought when I tell people about these experiments, because of course we know that canines and and dogs in particular have great noses, and they are certainly capable of using their noses to smell lots of things as recent work on, for example, COVID detection dogs has shown. But we actually did test them on their ability to find the food with no cue given. So you just hide the food under one of two cups. They don't see which one it goes into and we let them choose a cup. And we find that they actually do just about at chance levels. So they really seem to be guessing on that. Like it's not a conditioning response where, you know, you pair a certain stimuli or, you know, either an action or sound or something with food, for example, like the traditional, you know, psychology experiments with dogs that I'm thinking of. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I think that's been a a bit of an open question in a lot of previous research, um, and it's often raised as an objection to some of these things. And so one of the nice things about the study, because we had so many dogs enrolled in it, and especially because we were uh, working with these puppies, was to show that they were doing this from trial one and with really very limited exposure to human communication before that. Yeah. And so, I mean, I have to admit at this point that I'm sort of a cat person. I do love dogs, but cats notoriously aren't like fully domesticated. Um, And so is the bond that we have with cats, which are obviously another really common pet, is that different than what we have with dogs? 
I think that's a fascinating question. And unfortunately, less has been done with cat behavior and cognition. I think mostly because cats are not quite as cooperative subjects. <laughs> uh, I say that as a cat person myself. Um, I've grown up with cats. I foster cats. I would love to study cats at some point. <laughs> but they do pose quite a bit of a challenge to convince them that they really do want to participate in your experiment. Whereas, you know, these puppies, we don't even have to give them anything um, really that special to motivate their participation. The food that we give them is their normal dry kibble and they participate enthusiastically. But in terms of the cat bond, I do think that cats are also very bonded with their humans. And there is some work showing that they do respond to some extent to human communication, such as pointing as well, and that they also display attachment behaviors, um, again, kind of like human children. Yeah. So even though maybe like they weren't domesticated in the same way, they still have some of the same sort of like communication styles. Exactly. And I think part of this also relates to the question of uh, how you view domestication and to what extent is it kind of an intentional process and to what extent is it maybe a a longer term process that leads to all sorts of unintended consequences and byproducts. And there are lots of reasons to think that cats were less intentionally bred for certain sorts of behaviors and communication and things like that, because of course they've been part of human society often as rodent control more so than collaborative uh, roles the way dogs have with, say, hunting and guarding. But it may be that actually the important part of domestication for these sorts of communicative traits is that unintended multi-generational taming habituation process, and that that may be more important than what we often think of as the intentional breeding of these animals for a certain purpose. Interesting. So it's sort of like the unintentional traits that get carried over versus what people were originally trying to domesticate animals into doing? Yeah, that's the hypothesis, at least. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons we think that this might be true is actually a a long-running experiment um, in Siberia in which they domesticated foxes, farm-bred foxes. Oh, interesting. Basically, by selecting simply for less aggressive behavior upon the approach of a human, Mm -hmm. they actually ended up with foxes that would do all sorts of other things to solicit human attention, tail wagging, they would kind of whine. Um, They would also, incidentally, uh, perform better than the control foxes at this sort of pointing task. Wow, it's so fascinating how all these things are sort of like interrelated. Um, in in the study that you did, so obviously you showed dogs' interaction with humans and their ability to sort of like recognize certain things, but at eight weeks, dogs sort of aren't actually sophisticated enough to ask the humans for help. Is that right? Like, can you sort of explain that developmental process that dogs sort of go through early in life where they get from like, okay, I'm communicating on a certain level, but I haven't sort of reached the next milestone, so to speak. 
Yeah, so there's this somewhat classic uh, task in canine cognition that we refer to as the unsolvable task, where basically we teach the subject over the course of several trials that they can um, they can retrieve food from this open container. It's basically, you know, like a Tupperware that you would find in your kitchen, but the lid isn't firmly on it and they can come and they can get the food. And then you fix the lid onto it and they can't get the food. And we see whether they seem to ask for help. And one of the ways we measure this is whether they look towards the human experimenter. And we found somewhat to our surprise with puppies, because we had done this before with adults, that we didn't get a lot of human-directed gaze, whereas with adults, we had often gotten quite extensive mutual gaze from the dog. And so one of the things we kind of hypothesized in this paper is that that requesting of help may be something that they have not yet learned to do, um, and it may take some time over development to get there. Now, these dogs we've tested at eight to 10 weeks old, and then again at two years old, but we haven't actually yet tested time points in between. And so I think a really interesting question would be how this particular trait develops over the first couple of years of life. Yeah. And also like how much of that is based on like the specific relationship with a person and how much of that is based on just like any type of interaction? Like, does it take a specific type of interaction from humans to sort of develop that? Or does that develop more so just by interacting with humans in general? Yeah, I don't know that we have a really good answer to that yet, but this similar task has been conducted in a variety of other animals. One of my favorites recently was actually done with kangaroos showing that captive kangaroos will also actually um, look to humans for help in some cases. Um, and so I think there are a lot of unanswered questions as to how that ability develops and what role uh, experience and maybe biological predisposition play in this. Yeah. So it seems like there's this field is sort of like, there's still a lot of unanswered questions in like animal cognition how did you first get interested in this line of research and what sort of sparked this curiosity for you? Oh, wow. That's a somewhat long story. But the, <laughs> <laughs> the short answer, I guess, is that when I was a senior in college, I was studying dogs and wolves. And I specifically was working on a project trying to understand differences in their genetic regulation. And the basic idea there was that dogs and wolves are genetically very similar. They only diverged 15 to 30,000 years ago. Um, probably genetics themselves are only responsible for some of the differences that we see between dogs and wolves. And so maybe the way the genes are used, so if a gene is used more or less or at certain times um, in development, maybe that would explain some of the differences that we see in dog and wolf behavior. But in this process, I started reading about these studies comparing dog and wolf behavior and cognition. And it was actually some of these early pointing studies that got my attention. And I thought it was really fascinating because while many dog owners are probably unsurprised to hear that 
dogs follow human pointing. This was a bit of a surprise to folks studying animal cognition more broadly, and especially those who have studied primates, uh, because non-human primates seem to generally not use human-provided pointing cues in, in a similar paradigm. And so the dog finding was was this really surprising uh, result at the time. And when I realized that broader context, I was suddenly really interested in uh, the field that we tend to call comparative cognition. So comparing between different animal species. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So it was sort of like something that dog owners might see as obvious, like, oh, my dog responds to me pointing, but it didn't make sense in the larger schema of like what we thought we understood about um, animal cognition. Is that sort of the case? Yeah. And especially I think because non-human primates had not succeeded by and large at these sorts of tasks, some people were starting to suggest that maybe this was a really important development in human cognition. And maybe this ability to communicate gesturally uh, was fundamental to the development of human language and our just generally collaborative and communicative abilities. And there's still, of course, some reason to think that that may be true in part, but the fact that we see this in dogs and in fact in some other domesticated species to some extent really makes us think about why that might be. And maybe humans actually went through a process of kind of self-domesticating ourselves. And maybe there are some parallels there that we can learn from. So we like, we're not so different from dogs or cats or other domesticated animals in a sense. That's the hypothesis at least. And that (laughs) is really what got me into this field was that the intriguingness of that hypothesis. And this study was specifically was with, um, Labradors and golden retrievers and some hybrids of those two breeds. But is there a difference between different dog breeds in terms of like their genetic makeup and how much that influences their relationships and communications with humans? Have you sort of been able to compare across different types of dogs? Yeah, I actually did something like that as part of my master's project using citizen science data from dognition.com. And we looked at the purebred dogs who had participated in that. And we used breed average relatedness as a measure of genetics. We didn't have genetic samples on the individual dogs, so we couldn't test for specific associations. But we could say, well, you know, these breeds are more closely related, and those breeds are more closely related. And we could basically put numbers on that based on Uh, genetic data that has been published in the past. And then again, ask, well, to what extent does the breed average relatedness predict the patterns that we see in these sorts of communicative tasks? And we do find that, again, a considerable proportion of the variation is explained by genetics. And there's more variation between breeds than within breeds. But again, we don't yet know what that variation is and how it contributes to these traits. Yeah. So are there some dogs that sort of like overperform or are more in touch with humans or more like, you know, in tune with human communication than other breeds? There 
are to some extent, though again, in all of the work that we've done both within and across breeds, we find that more than half of the variation is not explained by genetics. Mm. And so I think that's a really important caveat because yes, I think there are these predispositions both on the individual kind of personality level and on the breed level, but there's also a lot that is really determined by the environment and their experience and their training. Right. So if you go, you know, to adopt a dog or go to the shelter, for example, it's not necessarily, I mean, I think people think of like certain breeds as being easier to train or better with kids or better with humans, but it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Yeah, it's definitely more complicated than that. And we'd all love a kind of easy answer of, you know, look at a dog in the shelter and, and have a guess as to how it will behave. But that's really hard to do. And I think is probably an unrealistic expectation because there are so many other factors that go into it. And anyone's behavior, our own, never mind dogs, is is very much shaped by the context and the situation. And, um, you know, do, if they're bonded with a person and if that person is nearby and all sorts of things that I think we tend not to think about, especially in those sorts of situations. What do we still sort of need to understand about dogs' cognitive development? Like what, what are the further things you're looking to research or unanswered questions? I mean, it seems like this is sort of, there's so much that we don't know. Absolutely. There's a lot that we don't know, which is exciting because it means that hopefully I have a a long career in trying to figure this out. (laughs) Yeah, Um, absolutely. But most immediately, one of the questions I'm really interested in asking, which is going to be a significant part of my dissertation, is, okay, now we know that genetic factors explain approximately 40% of the variation on some of these traits, and still a significant proportion of variation on other traits as well, even though it's it's not quite as high. Um, but what are those genetic factors? Can we actually identify specific genes that are important, both in explaining differences between individuals and then down the road, maybe between breeds and between dogs and wolves? The other thing that I was thinking about, too, when you were mentioning the other study that used the dognition data, the sort of like citizen science of people inputting their dog's genetic info, what role does that sort of play in these larger questions that you're trying to answer and that people are actually making available more genetic information? I mean, this isn't just in dog studies, but in other parts of science too. How is that sort of changing the type of genetic research that you're able to sort of like look into these factors by having this, you know, big data set? Yeah, the big data sets are really important for this kind of work. And that's one of the reasons that these questions have not been really addressed before is because if you have a study, you know, with the dogs you can bring into your lab in a given year and test them in person, you're probably limited to a few dozen dogs if you work really hard. But if we enlist the help of community scientists around the country, around the world, uh, we can rapidly build much larger sample sizes. And so the, the dognition work that I did previously used thousands of dogs. Now, in that case, we didn't have the genetic component as well. 
Um, and that's why we were we were relying on breed information in that case. But I think there are certainly avenues open there for people being willing uh, and interested to send in uh, samples. Yeah, so our listeners at home, if they're really invested in this type of research, they can help, right? They can um, they can submit some of their uh, dog's information into one of these databases. How does that work exactly? Yeah, there's actually kind of an ongoing community science effort in canine science. And some of them are involved maybe um, taking samples and sending them in for genetic sequencing. Some of them are much easier. Some of them involve printing out a few pieces of paper, laying them out on the floor and videotaping your dog or cat for a few minutes. Um, there are really a wide variety of different studies going on at almost all the time, especially during the pandemic, because I think we canine scientists have been unable to do as much in person. And so we've been turning to the internet. But there are lots of studies constantly being shared. Um, I know I see a lot of them on Twitter. And we're often sharing each other's as well, because you know it's always great to see new, exciting studies coming out. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. That is Gita Nanadesakin. Her latest study was published in Current Biology. Gita, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.